Welcome to the Fast Track of Innovation, the data-driven podcast. Here, data isn't just numbers, it's your superpower. Sparking stories of success from bites to breakthroughs. Dive deep into insights from the Data-Driven Conference, where data heroes assemble. Ready to supercharge your data journey? Strap in, it's time to get data-driven. Sponsored by Reltio. Reltio's AI-powered data unification and management cloud capabilities encompasses entity resolution, multi-domain SaaS, master data management, or MDM, and 360 data products. Reltio helps enterprises transform poor quality data from disparate sources into unified, trusted, and interoperable data. All right. Welcome to another data-driven podcast. My name is Chris Detzel, and today we have two folks on. One, Manish Sood. He is the CEO and founder of Reltio. Manish, how are you? Hey, Chris. Doing well. How are you? Doing well. Welcome back. Thank you. And we have Sharith Katipali. He is the former chief data officer at J.P. Morgan, and he used to work at Amazon and SoftBank. So thank you, Sharath, for coming today. Hey, Chris. Thanks for being here. Pretty excited. I'm looking yeah. forward to this. All right. I'm going to hand this over to Manish and let him interview you. Looking forward to it. Hey, Manish. Thanks for having me. Sharath. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure. And the, the few things uh, top of mind for me as we dive into the conversation are tied to your career path and journey. You've been around data for a long time. You've seen it at different companies in different roles. And it would be just great to understand a little bit about your career path and how you looked at the various roles and opportunities that you've been a part of at these extremely large organizations. So if you can share a little bit of that background, uh, I think everybody's very interested in learning more about it. Let's do it. Thanks, Manish. Firstly, pretty excited to be here. If I'm talking about my, if I were to talk about my uh, background, I think I would say I probably uh, rather had a very non-traditional background because once after school, I had a clear choice whether to become a software engineer or do something with the data. And then back in the day, it was not really so clear to me because of the immigrant visa where I was. I picked up data and got started there. And I think the first decile of my whole career was most about keeping up with the visa and getting excited with the boutique consulting firms or working for various clients. But my career growth and progression really kicked off in the second decile of my career, right? If I put together 18 different clients or customers I worked for, three different locations, uh, various successful leaders I had an opportunity to share uh, the table with. And I think... If I look back, it's a great privilege, and I feel that I'm fortunate uh, to see where, where I am. To look back, I think a couple of key themes jump out to me. Right? Why I spent my time first in financial industry and consulting firm. I worked for HSBC, and then uh, towards the 2008, when the whole Basel III, Dodd-Franks, and the liquidity issues have started coming up, that was a time where banks were shrinking, so uh, it was clear for me that I probably have to step out and do something. So I went into one of these startup kind of companies, a reverse logistic company, which is Brightstar. This was later acquired by SoftBank. 
I was responsible for managing their whole of their information and data stack. It was a global company. It was later taken over by SoftBank. I did various things around. Primarily, the business model of this company was around the reverse logistics for uh, telecom devices. So either could be accessories, cell phones. In 2007 and 8, with the advent of iPhones, their profit margin just rose. And there was a residual value for the reverse uh, uh, return phones. And the company being, their cash cow was reverse logistics. They take, they refurbish the phones and then sell, sell into either secondary markets or even secondary market countries. It was just a good opportunity. I had a very horizontal view of right from sales channel, source channel, marketing, sales, and also data business. There was one interesting thing which happened there. While we were trying to really work with the price residual values, uh, price erosion curves, uh, price protection curves, right? This was uh, mainly about how do you really drive incremental revenue and business for this business and how do you compete well with the other companies? And it was all about how do you price your cell phones a dollar less for the secondary market so that you basically get the conversion. In the course, we went with the new sales channels of eBay, Amazon, started putting stuff there grade A, grade B, grade C, grade D phones. And long story short, that particular relationship built my connection with Amazon. And things fast forward, I, I found myself with an offer uh, with Amazon and then was, there was a confidential project in, in place. And I had an opportunity to work and work for one of the best bosses of my career. It was at Amazon Go where uh, we were dealing and we were dealing with vision technology, buyer mentality, personalization at scale, Everything around the retail, the physical retail, which is completely, probably diametrically different than online retail, right? Everything around personalization at scale with high value customer, high value actions and so on. And I was there at Amazon and then I, I had an opportunity to go and run other concessions business also, primarily defect elimination, everything around the customer experience. Uh, during that course, in mid of COVID, I had this connection and the offer with JP Morgan to go really transition where I was with Amazon, the way I would encapsulate Amazon's experience was high touch, low margins because of the uh, B2C, because of the consumer nature, right? And the evolution into the um, institutional banking, which is JP Morgan's investment bank was high touch, high value, high yield business, right? Which is a B2B institutional business. I thought this shift is good. And because of my pedigree into banking, financials, it was not daunting and I was pretty excited to go and really make that shift, right? At uh, JP Morgan, again, uh, if you look at JP Morgan, it's one of a very unique place. There are not many players like that, such huge bank with uh, such a reputation. They have mounds and mounds of data and that is what I got excited. They have everything around relationships, trades, client, right? And this is huge and not everyone in that industry really has all these three or four categories of data. So I was responsible for running the chief data office for capital markets business, which is a very successful business. It's like everything around data production, creating a data architecture, reference data, uh, right? And then data products, commercialization, experimentation. This is all part of the scope. And I, if I look back, it is such a great experience to really look at the B2C and into a dive into a B2B with very different business leaders, a tech transition from a tech to a non-tech business also. 
but the non-tech is not any more relevant because the banks are rapidly changing. They understand where they have to be and how they have to really upgrade. So we are talking about completely a different set of world. Again, as I said, if I look back, pretty pretty thankful and appreciative about how my just career unfolded. And I'm looking forward to the next next part of this. Right now, what I'm doing is helping a couple of my very good friends who are all in the CXO roles or good connections, professional connections, doing advisory work across the agencies, includes administration and also portfolio and the FMCC businesses. That is wonderful, Sharad. What a phenomenal uh, career path and journey that you have been on and what a great set of companies that you've been a part of. So you're just thinking about that for a second. If you look at Amazon versus JP Morgan, Amazon, I, I can't believe that I'm saying this, but it's just a couple of decades old. You go back 30 years and that's when the business started versus somebody something like JP Morgan has been around for more than a century. So when you look at both of these businesses coming in from very different backgrounds in terms of their own evolution, what were some of the key differences that you saw between how these businesses operate or what was the thought process that was evolving in both of these cultures and companies? I think the very notion of what you said of the tenure tenure of their existence just just is the is the crux of our discussion also one relatively a very tech product engineering mentality tech company which has been probably for the last two decades the other one has gone through which is like the fortress been there for a century after multi acquisitions multiple acquisitions right it was a difference in mentality also right and let me Allow me to just segment this across multiple lenses. I would say, one, the way the business is done, specifically in our lens of data, it is, it is a certain way of centralized versus decentralized structuring. That is what I would encapsulate this as, right? Within, the tech is more centralized. Tech is more decentralized, I'm sorry, right? Engineering-driven or product-driven, where in, in some facets, engineering is the one which takes the first leap and then product really catches, then product takes the one. It can go on with that, right? But if you look at the uh, traditional investment banking, consumer banking, or any wealth management also, it is very siloed, but very centralized. I'm saying this uh, not by taking sides, but this is this has been done. I think I've, I've been in the organizations, I've checked a lot of folks around in the industry while I was new. There's a lot of pivot which happens from centralized to decentralized, right? Now, program, product, design, engineering, data, AI, it is all, it could be decentralized in some sense, but again, it is at the enterprise level, right? Because you have so yep. many lines of businesses. It all boils down to two things. Centralized, decentralized really, really defines the bass for action, the amount of velocity, what you can input in the business, right? That is one. Second, just uh, with the nature of they being, uh, the industry being in, in business for so long, the biz tech mentality is something which could be very different. That means in the tech companies, you'll see a lot more tech users, super users, ultra users who are very hand who are very, who have a very savvy hand and they could go and start deep diving. When you look at the financial sector, just because of the operations, their care, their core business mentality, right? 
not every business leader is very tech savvy. Data sa could be data savvy, but not tech savvy. That means they're still relying on analytical engines, vending engines, who on a daily basis or a monthly basis, they have to start coming up with any kind of dashboards or any kind of vending technology. So that probably is the crux of that. And then overall, the culture of iteration, right? The non-disruptive mindset or cannibalizing mindset, the self-cannibalizing tech mindset, uh, which is what is welcomed and very intentional in tech. Sometimes it is, I, I did see that is not um, very, uh, very prevalent in that industry. So as a data leader, Sharad, when you think about the two different styles or methods of uh, how these organizations work, what were the skills or the areas where you had to think differently when making a transition from one to the other? Both are at scale businesses, both are leaders in their own respective industries. And there's something about their businesses that they're getting right. But at the same time, there is an opportunity for transformation in each one of these businesses. So how did you grapple with that as a data leader? Oh, it, it was an interesting inflection also, right? At the tech industry, because I had some a decent level of foresight into how the financial industry works, I could see that what really is a normalizing thing in terms of velocity, the speed of output or go-to-market uh, in both industries comes down to audit compliance and uh, regulatory, right? If you look at overall the regulatory wave, in a value chain of regulatory wave, the e-com, the social commerce, the ad tech, the martech, uh, then comes the financial institutions, either could be consumer banking, and on top of the value chain is investment banking, HIPAA, which is biotech, and then the space tech, right? If you inverse all this triangle, what or the value chain, what I was mentioning, my shift was from probably, I could not say in terms of regulatory, the PII, the respect for PII and uh, the EU regulation, what, oh, what, what we have to really live with, that does not change. But on a day-to-day -day basis, what is the go-to-market speed? What defines in tech is completely different than what defines in in financial industry, because constantly any kind of GTM or go-to-market, you have to think through the lens of, is it regulatory compliant? Do we have, are we protecting the business? Are we protecting the client interest or the customer interest in every facet of it? I think that was one of the challenge also, which I grappled because it was very much a product and engineering and commercialization leader. Any kind of go-to-market strategy has to go through this. And that is where, it just dawned upon me that a, a traditional way of audit compliance regulatory probably is not going to suit. And we're going to probably, I think uh, in the later part of the uh, podcast, I think we are going to talk very much about AI at some point, I'm sure. This is where my fears just unfold. Because when the institutions which have been sitting on this mounds and mounds of either could call us referential data, master data, or unwielded uh, foundational data, if that is not accurate or correct, right? And with the AI wave, which is taking you from a very left spectrum to the very right spectrum of 10 into hundreds, right? You're moving from 10 to 20 miles to 100 miles. It is still being subjugated on all the foundation data. So from a product standpoint, I was able to really make a difference about thinking, the culture, influencing. But certainly I did grapple with regulatory audit and compliance that wing 
And it, it, it just felt like I started interviewing a lot of SaaS-based companies who could come and solve this problem, not with operation heaviness, but with SaaS fundamentals, somebody who really operationalized this, created this as a SaaS. So I think that, the, uh, in, again, in the interest of data and the data strategy, this, these were the two big diametrical things which I was dealing with. So Sharad, when we talk about data and the way you talked about it, it's foundational, especially when it comes to core data that you're running your business on, customer products, supplier type of information, or when we talk about it in the financial services industry context, then it is client or securities type of information that you're thinking about having as a foundational core asset that you can reuse across multiple touch points or impact multiple business objectives. But at the same time, the traditional way of thinking has been building a separate solution, a separate silo each time. And at the same time, we talk about centralized versus decentralized. So if we put all of that on one side and think about what is needed as a foundational capability Without going into the centralized versus decentralized argument, what would be some of those areas that you would think about as being core and foundational from a data perspective? Because you're right. First of all, no discussion is going to be complete without the mention or touching upon AI. But AI also has a reliance on core data assets being organized in the right manner. So would love your thoughts on how you think about it. I would take the liberty of course correcting one of your final anecdote, right? AI is dependent upon, AI is largely dependent upon the foundational data, right? That is your anecdote. For me, it just translates to AI cannot be independent of foundational data. It is very much part of it. And that is the thing what business leaders, the technocrats, everyone have to understand that. And in, in I, I will come back and really paint a picture of what I see as the future also. But uh, just to take it back and taking a step back, when I started my career, when I was starting to learn from individuals like you who probably have run bigger enterprises, then Knightsbridge was my go-to and look up to. Uh, that organization um, later was acquired by HP. If you look at what are the paradigm shifts at that point, and from where we came to, care came from to where we came to right now, was a, se a seismic shift, I would say. Because the four major pillars, what we were dealing with was the four Vs, I would call it, right? The volume, the variety, the veracity, and the velocity. This is what data business was all about. Hey, are we real time? Hey, what kind of um, heterogeneous data are we dealing with? What kind of variety of problems do we have? And what is the amounts of data we are talking? Now, if you look at this one, the hyperscalers, the cloud companies, the data cloud companies, everyone has really solved those four problems. Velocity is not a problem. Volume is not a problem, right? But the, the, the conversation has shifted from the four Vs to what I would say is the four Ps now, right? That is prediction, precision, productivity, and personalization. And I would extend it up and say personalization at scale. So your question when we are grappling, when we are not really grappling with veracity and variety of problems, foundation data still goes through that. So that needs to be very independent. So a centralized, a, a fastly paced uh, teams, which are very much uh, cited upon solving the foundational problems, need to be done 
very fastly and very precisely. That also means investing in modern day compliance companies or modern day tool stack companies. And this is where it gets really uh, busy because no matter what, if the foundation data is not accurate, your fortune is still been running on the rails which are broken. And very interestingly, the, the one way to go about it is it, data business is never going to be an accurate business or if I come in and you come in, which is the reason CDO jobs are probably the most difficult office to run out there. Right? Gartner basically said in 2019, the average tenure is 3.2. And from then up until now, it has probably gone 300 basis points down now. Right? Again, to summarize on this one, what, is, what comes to be the core is three aspects. How do you really curate and unify the reference data and which can be a continuous CI-CD kind of uh, architecture, which has to be complete and continuous? As and when the business is evolving, that means your foundational data is constantly changing. So there needs to be constant investments around that. Second, the data product innovations are very much reliant on the foundation data. And whenever you go through the major major acquisitions, this will come back into picture, right? And the, finally, I think the volume and the, sorry, the uh, velocity and the volume is not a part of the question anymore. So only if we take the first two into consideration, I think, there will be a lot more of success. And uh, in fact, companies will be protecting themselves from a lot of fines is what I'm going to stretch and say, which probably I'll be talking when the air discussion comes in. Yeah. And when you think about that, the you talked about the curation and the unification of the data, but the reason why we would look at something like that uh, across every business, not just in financial services, is because we want to impact the business outcomes with the same set of interoperable data asset that is core and foundational. So how do you, in, in these organizations, how did you think about the consumption of the data and how did you piece together a sequence of the path forward in terms of how to drive the reuse of the core curated data asset that you had started building up? Uh, uh, I think I would say there's a there's an anecdote which I constantly use and which even though it's such a old one, it still really holds true to this date. Data rich is oftentimes information poor, right? Only when you really invest in data strategies that can be easier. Now what happened is there is an asymmetry between compute and storage. The storage is yeah. getting the, the, the data is getting exponentially large because everything is spitting out and vending out data and compute is getting incrementally cheaper. Now, this is like a perfect storm between compute and storage. And this asymmetry is going to drive a lot of hallucinations coming into the pieces, right? And now, with specifically, how did we think about it and what was my, my overall take is, Focus on the foundational, protect the business from audit and compliance, constantly keep the continuous improvements on data commercializations, meaning test out the rapid prototyping and experimentation as a mindset, right? Experimentation is, by, by virtue of it, you are 50% likely to fail. So how do you really go about changing the opinion for the business sponsors and stakeholders that experimentation is not a luxury, it's mandated. 
It has to be intentional and judicious. And that is where you will go right, you will learn, you will uh, incrementally innovate on things, right? Uh, so that culture really helped us forward, right? Meaning we constantly not only said we took an approach of audit compliance and reference data, which is mandated, but it is oftentimes looked at defensive approach. But while we were curating of that, uh, curating that, taking a small amounts, taking small subsets, going on incremental innovations, providing data products, either for clients and customers, and being able to look at their usability, observability, that really changed a lot of um, mindset. And, and the shift is, how do you start from an experimentation mindset where largely your outcomes could be 70% unsuccessful to getting them into the, uh, to the finish line of 50% or 500 plus um, operations. That means when you move the needle from left to, even though you could still be around the 50% mark, but how do you consistently hit that 50% mark? That is where the success was. Got it. And Sharath, as you talk about the culture of innovation, because every everything you're thinking about, what is the next set of things that you have to go deliver on and drive incremental and transformational value out of. How are you advising or guiding your, the teams that you are engaged with on how to combine AI and data strategy together? What, what's been the thought process there? See, I think it just, given the amount of time I spent in the industry, it is very clear that data and AI can't be separate functions anymore. And if you look back, Manish, let's go a decade back. Then the argument was, can data and analytics be separate functions, right? Most times data was separate, analytics was separate, right? The analytic leader could be somebody who's more coalesced and very much augmented and aligned with business side. Because once the vending of the data happens around any different application or tools or dashboards, whatever we call, that particular leader is more aligned on the business side. But the data harvesting teams, who are the ones who are doing the lift and the shift and the transformation, they completely understand what it takes in order to really manufacture new data sets or really curate new data sets or go and, go and really update any kind of data sets when a business logic is changing. The difference in mentality with the two leaders have always created friction. Now, finally, we, we started seeing big C roles, CDAO, the data officer and the analytics officer, pretty much one, they, they can't really exist in isolation anymore. They have to coexist. Now I changed that paradigm to data and AI. Everything what you're talking about AI, I, I, I think it, it becomes important to talk about this distinction. Let's just go back to the history and I'll come back to your question, right? AI has always, at least in the business stakeholder leaders, right, the business sponsors who have been very busy running their business, a little distant away from technology, and this usually happens in the healthcare and the uh, deep financial institutions, they've never really witnessed what the practical use of AI could be because in the advent, if we look at where we came, at least back in two decades back also, first it was dimension modeling, relational modeling, then came everything around the MPP systems, the massively parallel systems. Then we started looking at Hadoop, big data, 
ML, AI, and finally we got into the LM, uh, SML models, the large language and the small language models. But it was only with the generative AI, all of the business world and community started having a cognitive interface to AI. That really changed their whole expectation of what technology can do, which kind of leapfrogged from somewhere in the 10 percentile range to the 90 percentile range. And that really increased the push for expectations on IT and tech also, right? Now, uh, if, this is important to understand because uh, where we are going back is now because of that expectation, the ITs or the tech worlds will be under immense pressure to deliver something at a fast scale uh, using the foundation model. But now the foundation models cannot be curated so easily because the foundation model are built on the data strategies, right? So the answer is, I'm starting to propose that by all means, data and AI has to be under one umbrella and it is one responsibility. The application of data, of AI and commercialization of data products, that could be a separate office. And this is what I'm starting to even advise and uh, instruct the companies, especially in their two years and three years uh, down the lane strategy. And in terms of connecting the technology investments, whether it is AI or data or the combination of those two, to the business outcomes, any guidance in how people should be looking at that? Because again, I feel that if technology remains disconnected from delivering business outcomes, that in itself becomes a big hurdle uh, for these technologies uh, as a starting point. You, you're right about that. Where my, there are two quantum of instructions what I'm trying to put together. One, the CEOs, the IT infrastructures, head of IT infrastructure, usually that sits around CEO, uh, be very wary of infrastructure cost. Because you're currently moving from almost liquid engines to uh, propane engines, where you do not even have a same, you're not moving at this, you're not comparing oranges to oranges in terms of infrastructure. Now with the asymmetry between the compute and the storage, the compute becoming so faster, so cheaper, the storage again, both are going that way. If you do not really look at the infrastructure cost, you will be shocked by the end of the year what really shows up, right? And now you can push anything into the foundation model, it's going to take a spin, right? But the questions what are going to be asked with conversational AI or could be any cognitive AI, you have to be careful about the infrastructure cost, number one. Number two, what I'm also, in fact, I stretched the truth and I expanded and really worked most of the December to understand what are going to be the downside of hallucinating AI engines. Because I've started to see the portfolio companies or other companies, I'm not much into the biotech world, but the other companies, I'm starting to see that 2024, 2025, business is going to make some hasty decisions based on gen AI conclusions. And you're going to ask the amount of veracity, the amount of truth and fidelity, what we are going to put into the foundation models. And we ask any question and it's going to really give you that confident, confident, hallucinated answer. Business decisions are going to be based on that. And I will give you an anecdote and the one of the data point around that, right? If you look at NY Times suing OpenAI and the big four, just yesterday, the Newswire hit the, yesterday, 
the big four, which is all the big four consulting companies, they're putting away some money for really tackling this problems around misinformation, what is going to come back to. This is going to be very important. So those two themes, watch out for your infrastructure costs. Second, have a very strong, hard guardrail around what are the business decisions you're going to make based on the predictions of the AI engine because your foundation models are not all that healthy yet. And yep. just do a mapping, one-on-one -on -one mapping with what EU regulation said and what your foundation models are going to do. It just feels like by 2026, the fines and regulations will be thrice or quadruple in the first two years of first EU man what came. Um, and that, is, by the way, is going to bring the focus on explainability and traceability back into the data that is used to make the decisions. And you're exactly right. Now, explainability, even observability also, this all ties back to where your traceability matrix, what, what are you going to do with the data quality and how do you really come back to the data foundation? A very good site has to be given to the foundational data still. And that, is, that, has been, that has been my theme also for all these companies. So as we look at the future trends, how do you look at the time horizon to adoption for some of these types of capabilities in a meaningful way? I know that there will be some experiments. I know that there will be a race to trying to get to outcomes, but that race is also going to be fraught with certain failures that you're already alluding to in this process. Oh, the way I look at it is one, just let's have a very hard look at what percentage of code is written by AI engines starting last year. It already started, right? It's going to be a double digit or a triple digit growth. And I would go and stretch it up and say, AI is not going to replace engineers, but engineers who use AI will replace other engineers the faster, right? If you look at overall 2024 in, in the paradigm of 2026 and Gartner Research and multiple researchers have talked about this one, right? 26 to 30% of the whole code written in 2024 and 2025 will be through AI machines. That means they need a bigger, larger oversight uh, to start working around them. And most of the Pretty much the hallucination, again, the, when it comes to the question about the hallucination, 2024 will be a big, there will be a big discussions about the AI hallucinations and strong conviction and confident uh, failed answers. How do we really protect ourselves? So the, the questions will be back onto this. But uh, again, on the contrary, there'll be a lot of business value, which is driven out of 2024 but not significantly as much as we were expecting because most of the investment in 2023, which went in on AI and Gen AI, first, it was a hype cycle. Everyone wanted to be part of it. Yep. So 60 to 70% of that might not yield the results, but the meaningful yield of 40% of that results will start shaping in 2024, right? The bigger the company, it's, I, I would still uh, be cautious about how quickly can you move um, especially on the conversational AI and Gen AI, because the answers, what are going to be given, still it is very much based on the foundation models. Overall, cautiously optimistic and a large part of our path forward is going to be informed by some of the failures that we have to pay extra attention to because 
I think this path of uh, adoption of AI is irreversible, but at the same time, how quickly, how fast we move towards that kind of a direction is going to be informed largely by some of the problems that we anticipate and figure out ways to address. Very true. And uh, let me also pivot this and ask you a question also. You are running this company which deals a lot uh, with some of the uh, secular growth companies, right? Now, a discussion could be the, the AI growth cycle, who does it really benefit? And one, the benefits are pretty obvious, but who really takes the burden of this? CDOs actually take the burden of this because right. the whole of their focus is going to be back on the CDOs. But how clean your data is, what is the traceability of the data quality is established, and how do you protect the business, right? Because at the end of the day, everyone wants to win the race, but turn around, you still have to, you have the responsibility to protect the business from any kind of audit compliance and regulation. What is your view? I'm pretty interested to understand your view on this. Sir, when we think about this overall equation, there are lots of technology foundational capabilities that are becoming available. AI is one such capability. But at the end of the day, the true value of it lies in how are we going to apply it to driving business faster, better, cheaper toward business outcomes? And that's the whole promise that we have to start unlocking out of it. Uh, but in order to get there, I think uh, think of large language models or the small language models, all the innovation that's going on there, even the, the user experience innovation, which made it easily adoptable by every user. Those are infrastructure level innovations that have taken place. Now, how do we take that foundation of infrastructure level innovations and apply them to solving specific business problems? That's the area where we have to connect the dots. And I think that is going to be very huge, specific to very subject matter specific areas. So that is going to require an expertise or a combination of certain industries, certain verticals, certain problem space that you pick and choose and apply these infrastructure capabilities to get to a faster, better, cheaper type of an answer out of this. Couldn't agree more with that, Manish. So, Sharad, I know that there is one such area where you are involved in applying this, Louisa.ai. That's one of the companies that you're advising and working with. Tell us a little bit about the work that is going on there. Sure. See, that was an interesting time, middle of the year there. When I joined the investment bank, one of the biggest opportunity in the investment banks or anywhere when you look at it, because all the trade desks, either could be fixed income trading, rates, macro, derivatives, anyone, there is always a time decay factor when you're doing investment trades. If you have a seller and on the sell side constantly tries to buy uh, sell stuff to the buy side, and if the matchmaking does not happen in a quick interval, there is a decay. And that's pretty much the alpha and the delta decays, what we talk about, right? It's a very hyperscale, it happens in the investment banking. And if, if you look at the overall TAM across the investment, there are not many clients. There are X thousands of clients which still have a lot of revenue around moving. So a biggest missed opportunity usually happens when you're trying to do one of the REITs trade uh, or say a macro or a derivative trade. And within a day's time, you have to find the buy side. 
So you could go to Japan and it's a global business, right? Uh, across time zones. And that typically happens not much with assistive technology, but still a very manual deal making. So Louisa exactly comes to that. At least it came into the inception for, with that thought. So primarily it is an very much an AI-powered, intelligent revenue-enabled platform. It can be it can be a very fit for global financial firms and very will very much will expand beyond global financial firms. And the missed opportunity is what I was trying to tackle. And then Goldman Sachs was using this while I was thinking about this. And then the founder, Rohan Doctor, is a very veteran veteran founder who was in Goldman for about 26 years, then came out and started his own company. And he said, he spoke to me and said, if you ever step out and if you uh, if you feel like engaging with us, I'm happy to. And so when this happened, when I was thinking about thinking about the next opportunity or taking a break and really coming out, this happened. So I joined them. This this company, Louisa, is very interesting right now, and I'm very excited about where it's going to go because it's going to fill that missed opportunity bucket and incrementally drive the revenue by making matchmaking with the AI powered matchmaking and uh, everything around scraping right from uh, strong ROI-based ability to trigger the revenue-generating ideas. So it's an internal product eventually. It's an investment-grade internal product. We are, I'm helping them mostly to run their technical, technical deep dives and also be able to share a lot of knowledge what I have. That is the advisory role what I'm doing. Mahesh is the CTO who runs out of Bangalore, is doing a pretty phenomenal job a very smart Stellar 25 plus team. Rohan runs a team very lean and mean also. That's one of the other impressive things which I like about it. And in today's world, capital efficiency is the hallmark of excellence. If you don't, if you don't know how to use the capital, capital effectively, I don't think there's not a lot of upside. But yeah, yeah those, for, that, for, that's any business, for any business out there, small, medium or large, capital efficiency or being great stewards of capital is the key thing that everybody has to pay attention to. Yeah, and it was even more important getting into 2023 because that particular nerve was just, was so important. 2020 and 21, there was a lot of liquidity in the market. Coming into 23, it wasn't that. So that is where Rohan really, I got gravitated to this idea and I said, yes, this is something where I want to be involved. So we, Luisa has a long way to go, but uh, the pictures are happening. Clients are being very happy. They're receptive about this. And yeah, it's a good story. Yeah, and a great example of how taking something generic like AI, applying it to a specific business problem and creating value out of it, which is a pattern that we are going to see more and more of. And well, if you, very, very well said also, Manish, if you look at it, banks, financial industries, they have solved a lot of interesting problems. And if they can think beyond and see how, what really worked here actually works everywhere. And that's how Amazon yeah. really thought about AWS. And now that's how every other cloud company has come into inception. So I'm sure in the coming years, banks are going to start out with this new thing about really white labeling their services and spinning off entities. And Luisa is exactly one of those things. It just worked at Goldman. So it will work everywhere. And that's the belief and conviction what Rohan has. And he has come out with that. Sharad, thank you so much for your time today. It was great to talk to you about these uh, topics, especially ranging from 
your experience in dating, how you've used it as a strategic asset with this constant uh, curation type of a model and continuously improving the quality of information that is going to be leveraged as a foundational bedrock of driving business outcomes. And especially as we look at AI, the next frontier, again, the dependency on data is going to be key and everybody has to think about how to get that right. Thank you for sharing your insights and your experience with us. I'm sure everybody will enjoy listening to this episode. And couldn't couldn't be more happier to be here, Manish. It's always good to have a chat with you. I know I've been following and looking at your work. I'm pretty impressed with that. And yeah, good luck with this data podcast also. It's a it is the right timing to talk about these topics and really open up and share knowledge because what we are really moving from is on a quick scale. We are just, we are moving from very left spectrum to the very right spectrum at a, a huge scale. And I know that this podcast, you're going to invite good leaders who are going to divulge a lot of meaningful information and the community will, will get benefited with that. Thanks for doing this and thanks for having me. Thank thanks. you, Sarah. And thanks for our audience for tuning in. Please make sure you rate and review us and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you guys. Thank you, Chris. 